Governor Raimondo says she plans to throw a lifeline to the state's small businesses. But is it too little, too late? And Rhode Island wants its school children to return to the classroom in the fall. What are the challenges local administrators are facing? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on this week's panel, Ed Acorn, former editorial page editor for the Providence Journal, NAACP Providence Branch President Jim Vincent, and former Rhode Island Attorney General Arlene Violet. Hi everyone and welcome to Lively. We appreciate your spending part of your weekend with us. Well, this week, more than 3,000 people signed a petition, an online petition, imploring Governor Raimondo to use some of the federal coronavirus aid money. There's more than a billion dollars. They say it should go to struggling small businesses. This is something the governor has resisted. But finally on Wednesday, she cried uncle and announced that she would have a plan to distribute some of that money next week. Here's a little bit of what she had to say during her meeting with reporters on Wednesday. We are spending an enormous amount of time hearing from businesses, you know, what do you need the money for? How quickly do you need it? Is, is, who's getting the most hit? Is it restaurants? Is it gyms? Is it minority-owned businesses, small businesses? So we're putting the, I guess, final touches on our proposals. It's most likely going to look like uh, small grants to various, for to all small businesses who can qualify. There'll probably be something special for restaurants, maybe something to help them buy supplies, um, just dollars in the hands of small businesses. How quickly can you get that out the door after next Wednesday? Pretty quickly, like right away. We know, we know, I hear it, I hear it, I want them to survive, uh, and we want to get the money in their pockets as soon as we can. I, I don't want, listen, the last thing I want is for them to go under. So I had first talked with the governor about this six weeks ago. Lieutenant Governor Dan McKee has also been really pressing for this. The governor has been resistant, but I think this online petition helped to move things along. Ed, the point I made with the governor yesterday in talking with her was, one, if these small businesses go under, that's more tax revenue that's lost to the state in already struggling times. Totally. The, the government has no free money. Uh, it all comes from businesses. This should have been done yesterday. I don't understand why we have this very expensive commerce department if nobody is working on a plan to save businesses in Rhode Island. It makes no sense. I don't understand why they're fumbling at this point, why it takes a petition of 3,000 people to get them to act. Arlene, I know she's been worried about this big gaping budget hole. She could have started layoffs 10 weeks ago or furloughs for state workers and saved millions of dollars, but she seems to want to hang on to this money, even though Congress said specifically that's not what this money is intended for. Yeah, there's no question she's late to the show, as the saying goes. But it's not just an issue, though, of just throwing money. We saw with the PPP program, people getting funds that never should have gotten it, uh, uh, red tape that was a problem, et cetera. I think it, there are policies here uh, that the governor has to decide 
uh, what to do relative to the money. None of us want to see any small business fail. But who should get this money? Do you give money to a business that's going to tank anyway? So it's throwing, you know, good money after bad, et cetera. You have to have some policies in place. And yes, it has been six weeks too long, but I really hope that she has a set of criteria so that this money isn't just pell-mell out there uh, with people just doing with it whatever they want, and they're not going to be saved as a business anyway. She needs to have a program in place. So hopefully she'll have that by next Wednesday. Jim? Yes, well, I'd like to start by saying I think the governor has done a phenomenal job in terms of this pandemic. So I think uh, she's second to none in the country. However, you know, it is important to get those small businesses, continue them, for them to continue because of the tax revenue, because of the quality of life of the people that are affected, that are employed by them. I know in my community, we're in a crisis. We could lose half of the black small businesses if we don't get help soon. So I can't uh, echo uh, what's been said uh, here in that we need to get that money to the small businesses as fast as possible because they need it. They employ most of the people. So uh, I, I agree with Eileen. You got to be, you know, have a plan. You just don't throw money at people. But I think that there's uh, enough uh, good minds that we can have an effective program and save our small businesses. Jim, I would I would agree with you. I think overall the governor's done a great job. You look at some of the problems other states have had. I think Rhode Island's way ahead of the curve. And I was thinking, because you follow the governor closely, it just occurs to me that she said it was almost as if, if her communications people would have said, look, there was a front page story in the Providence Journal yesterday. Let's get ahead of this and announce this. It's almost like I had to beat her out of it and she was coming up with it on the fly. The thing I worry about is how, as Arlene alluded to, how do you come up with a program that's going to be equitable and rolled out the door in less than a week if you haven't been working on it for the last month? Yeah. I'm point that Jim this is, this is a dereliction of her responsibility, I believe. I think you've had months to worry about small businesses dying in Rhode Island, and they're dying like flies. And where is this very costly Commerce Department? Why is there no plan? Why does it take you, Jim, uh, pressing her to come up with a plan? It makes yeah. no Ar sense to me. Arlene? Yes, yeah, so one of the issues that Mr. Vincent just raised, which I think is really important, is the minority community. And I know, for example, when we had to have the temporary hospital over at the convention center, we spent $24.1 million. None of that went to any minority contractor. They're not in the Rolodex. So I hope on Wednesday, the Rolodex has been updated so that minority communities uh, can get these funds to save their own businesses. So. You know, I just don't want this to be a flood of money out there without any rhyme or reason to it. All right. We will keep an eye on it. I will certainly be at that press conference on Wednesday, and we'll come back and talk about this next week. Uh, one of the few things that I think Governor Raimondo and President Trump agree on, although in different ways, is they want to see the kids come back to public schools in the fall. The governor announced almost a month ago, maybe a little more, that public school children in Rhode Island, they're aiming for a statewide calendar of August 31st. Jim, let me begin with you. I think that the president is kind of trying to bang, you know, a circle into a square. The governor has told the superintendents, although there's a little bit of angst, come back. I wonder your concerns. It sounds like a laudable goal because parents need to get back to work, but whether you think this is going to be workable and what some of the challenges are leading up to the end of August. It's like anything else, the, the devil's in the details. And I know that people are scrambling because 
you know, it doesn't seem that far off six weeks to get plans in place where the resources, the transportation uh, needs of the kids. Um, I'm always error, my, I'm always looking at the kids' health first. However, I think if there ever was a state where you can open up sooner rather than later, it would be Rhode Island. I think the president, he's playing politics, obviously, because of the fact that there's hot zones around the country that uh, obviously they shouldn't be starting any time soon. But I think in Rhode Island, uh, you know, if we do the proper planning, and I know the window is closing fast in terms of August 31st, uh, I think that in this case, uh, I think the governor is looking out for the fact that we don't want our kids to fall further behind in terms of learning. If you remember the Hopkins study, Providence, for example, has one of the worst public school systems in the country. Folks? Ed, Arlene? Yeah, I... I, well, I, I, I go, go ahead, ahead Arlene. Okay. I, I certainly uh, think that Mr. Trump, by saying he's going to withhold federal funds, he turned out to be the school bully again. But putting that aside a moment, uh, I really think it is important for all the reasons he articulated to get the schools there. And there is, it seems to me, uh, substantive objections that arise. Uh, you know, the school superintendents knew this day was coming. And I, I really don't cotton uh, to their comments that, oh, this is a big surprise and you're rushing us and we're this or that. No, get on the dime. Let's get this moved forward. Of course, it's a pandemic. We want to make sure children are safe. The one concern I have uh, is on the school, the neighborhood school issue. I think it's on the one hand, it looks like it's a good idea so kids can walk to school, but I hope it doesn't reintroduce segregation again. Mm. Yeah. Ed? I, I think it's similar to the business thing. We knew, we knew we we're gonna go back to school sometime. Why isn't there a plan? It makes no sense. Also, science shows children are the least susceptible to getting COVID-19 and, and it does not kill them. And we are damaging these children horribly by keeping them away from other children, which they need to exist as children, to thrive. And they need an education. So I think we're being way too cautious. I think we have to move forward with school for kids. And obviously parents are going nuts. They need to get back to their jobs. It's it's something we have to do. The science backs up that there are uh, certain communities that are at great risk. We've got to protect those, but we cannot shut down our entire society forever. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I've talked with my wife about that. My twins are grown now, but I mean, anybody who's had kids, I said, can you imagine? I'm so glad they're not in fourth or fifth grade right now. One, because they lost me in third grade on the math. I have no idea how they do math anymore in schools, but also the parents trying to juggle jobs and back and forth. And Jim, I also wonder about some of these kids who have the, the, the family structure is a little tenuous. School provides that structure and quite frankly, provides meals for a lot of people. Okay, the schools do, do provide meals, but I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that you also have teachers and faculty and staff that also could be susceptible, susceptible to the virus. And also, even though kids are, have a low uh, you know, mortality rate or whatever, or a low positive rate, they still can get it. They can, they can transmit it to their families when they go back home. And then there's elderly, there's multi-level families. So I want to make sure that we're, we're, we're mindful of that. I understand the, uh, the, uh, the fact that our kids have been falling behind and we need to get back to school, but it's a balancing act, you know, and I just don't want to just go one way or the other way. 
when, when talking about something that I think is complex. What about that, Ed, that, that there are a lot of older faculty members, uh, this happens at the universities too, who are a little bit concerned, but you might have an elementary school teacher who's 50, 60 years old. It's not just the kid's demographic. What about that, that well, problem? I think teachers that fall into the risk group have to be very carefully protected. Um, but I don't think you shut down our, all our education. I don't think you shut down our society over this. You can't. It hurts children too much. They need to play with each other, for one thing. They need to socialize. They need to learn how to be human beings by interacting with other children. And you just can't go on this way because you were afraid that a couple people might be at risk. You have to protect those people. You have to put in systems that protect those people hand washing, all sorts of other things. And uh, if, they, if they feel at risk, I think you have to pull them out of that setting. But you don't deny an education to every child. Yeah, on the university this, level. Go ahead, go ahead, Arlene. I just wanna say, isn't this a great teachable moment, however? With <laughs> kids going to school, the, the teacher's able really to develop the sense of community that kids should have, being careful about each other, being careful about adults, et cetera. This is a fabulous environment to teach social responsibility. And of course, special education is always a love of mine. Uh, and no one needs uh, that touch on uh, the special ed kids uh, in this day and age. Okay. Uh, we will keep an eye on that and see how things roll out. I can't believe it. You, you said six weeks. It really is just six weeks away. It seemed like they had a long time. All right. Given all of the protests and unease of the country and locally, there has been renewed focus on the so-called Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. This has been around since the mid-70s. They've tried to, a lot of people say it favors the police. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of the onion to peel back. But Arlene, you had a column that you wrote this week that I thought was very interesting. Some people are saying, you know, roll it back all together. You took a little bit different approach and one that I think would shed some light to the process. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think we have to realize that when police chiefs are appointed, it's part of a political process. Usually a mayor, for example, will appoint who the police chief is. And there can be abuses there. We have seen abuses. You know, during the CNC administration, when Urbano Prigiano was the police chief, uh, you know, you, you weren't to give tickets to any friends or contributors to the mayor. And if you did, you know, you were on the, the bad list and never got any promotions or anything of that nature. So when you have an inherent political process where a politician controls who becomes the police chief, you can't just leave it up to them to unilaterally have the decision on whether someone should come and go. Uh, my point is, however, the great antiseptic is, without question, I feel the hearings, except in the case of addiction, these hearings should be public once a police officer opts to go uh, to a hearing. You know, police only have their authority from the community. The community gives them the power to police the community. And if they have lost that respect, they're unable to do their jobs. I think trust has to be reinstated. And the way to do that is to make it a transparent process where if a police officer says, I want that hearing, the hearing is public just like it is for anyone else. I think, by the way, that should apply to municipal uh, and state workers as well, if you choose to have a hearing about your job. So I think it is a balancing uh, that is necessary here, but uh, I think at least the hearing should be public once that's opted. Jim, what about that? Well, you know, I think uh, there should be a balancing, but right now it's tilted way, way too far in favor of the 
police officer. Let me give you an example. If what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd happened in Providence, the most that Chief Clements could have given that officer in terms of punishment is a two-day unpaid suspension, okay? Of course, a Leopold hearing could be triggered, but that takes six to eight months. So until this person is either indicted or a Leopold hearing, whichever comes first, we're talking about months, while Providence is burning, we're, we're, we're working with a policeman's bill of rights. So I think that you have to really reform it. A two-day unpaid suspension for a person that does an assault to a citizen or murders a citizen is just not going to cut it. I don't think people realize how much slanted this thing is in terms of the uh, police officer. I've been the president of the NAACP for, for 10 years, and my experience with chiefs across the state has been great. To me, they've done a great job as a group. It's these bad apples or racist cops or whatever who gets a slap in the wrist and get promoted even though they commit assault. That's the problem. So we got to reform that policeman's bill of rights and we got to reform it greatly. Full uh, disclosure, I'm on the Senate commission with Harold Metz. And I also know that uh, Anastasia Williams, Representative Williams has put in a bill to at least get that two day suspension uh, up to 30 days. I mean, we have people that are assaulting citizens that are handcuffed and you can't fire them. No chief in Rhode Island can fire anybody. It takes six to eight months for a Leopold hearing. The uh, accused uh, officer can pick his own, one of the three judges. Where in America can you pick your own judge? Uh, I think that she has some good ideas in terms of expanding it to five people, maybe having somebody from the Human Rights Commission on, on it. Um, I, I think the Superior Court maybe can pick the people. Maybe you shouldn't even have the situation where the chief picks one either. Uh, but it needs to be reformed. We could have a situation in Providence, similar to Minneapolis or Ferguson, be out of control. The, the police uh, chiefs cannot fire anybody in the state of Rhode Island as the Policeman Bill of Rights is presently constituted. And that's an outrage. Ed, go ahead and jump in. Yeah, well, uh, I've expressed concern over the years about uh, this uh, act protecting uh, possibly bad officers. You want to, though, strike a balance because it's very important that we put police in these positions where they have to make very difficult decisions in a very brief period of time. And you've got to have due process protections for police officers or no one will do the job. So you strike a balance. You try to look for the best practices in the 50 states, I think. You don't just willy-nilly go into this. You, you very thoughtfully look at what uh, works in other states and what could be best for Rhode Island. There's no reason why there can't be an expedited process here. As we know, in courts, there's a special calendar that you can get on within like 10 days and have the hearing uh, immediately ad seriatim one day after the other. What's wrong here is, as Jim Vincent pointed out, these matters go on for months and months. And usually, the more guilty cops are the ones that are extending this out because they get to continue with their salary. So right. I, I think that uh, 90 days generally is more than sufficient to investigate, do the necessary discovery, and then commence the hearing. And at least if someone's charged and it's going to a hearing, at that point, the salary should be suspended and take away the incentive just to drag this out ad infinitum. Arlene, can you put your former attorney general's hat on or your attorney general's hat on? Can you clarify for me, though? So let's take the George Floyd situation. or Let's just take any felony. If a police officer was charged with a felony, felony murder, doesn't that change the dynamic? Can't they move to fire? Can't they suspend without pay? Isn't there something they can do when it gets to that serious level? Yes, as long as, of course, the, the statute doesn't countermand that. 
uh, as uh, Jim Vincent just pointed out. So yes, I mean, you can, in effect, have that become the trigger that then stops the salary, et cetera. So th there needs to be openness and transparency, and you need to take away the incentive to drag this out by having the salary continue forever and ever until the conclusion. The grand jury brings out an indictment that the cop should be suspended at that point without pay. Okay. Uh, another issue, Jim, that I know you've been following is the Supreme Court vacancy. This got a lot of attention early on because former state Senator Aaron Lynch Prada now, uh, it, there was a whole ethics thing going on. The larger issue here is potentially getting somebody of color on the court. So let, let me get your initial thoughts, and then I have a couple of questions, and we'll get Arlene and Ed to weigh in. What's your thought is, as the governor, the, the, where it is now is they're interviewing a whole pool of people. There is a, a woman of color, Melissa Long, who's a Superior Court judge right now. So what is your thinking about this, Jim? Well, my thinking initially was that, yeah, I'd like to see a person of color be on the Supreme Court, but you know, at, at the time that it, the discussion was taking place, we didn't know if there was going to be any candidates. Now we know that there is a, not only a candidate of color, but an excellent candidate of color, not, no less than a Superior Court judge, Melissa Long, who the governor herself appointed about two or three years ago. So that's one. I, think, I predict that Melissa Long will be the person that will fill that vacancy on that Supreme Court because she's a Superior Court judge. She's qualified. She's excellent. She's as good or better than anybody I've seen that has their name in the pool. So you know, you, if you're going to pick the best, you might as well pick the best, and that's her. And as far as uh, Erin Lynch Prada, I know she's an excellent senator. She does well in terms of the Senate Judiciary Committee. But I agree with the Ethics Committee staff that say that she would be in violation of the revolving door law. You know, you can't make exceptions with the revolving door law because that whole system comes down. It says constitutional officers are, are, are the exception. Well, that's Secretary of State, Treasurer, Lieutenant Governor, and Governor. It, doesn't, it doesn't, wasn't intended to be senators and representatives. So I think that's being disingenuous with the wording of constitutional. She should not be eligible. She should be subject to the revolving door law. I know she's an excellent senator. Uh, she's not a judge, unlike Melissa Long, who's a superior court judge, no less, of color, excellent. Governor Raimondo appointed her, so she should be familiar with her. So I predict that the next uh, Supreme Court uh, judge, the vacancy is going to be filled aptly by Melissa Long, and I'd be shocked if it was anybody other than her. Folks, I would be Arlene, you want to weigh in on that? I'm be, sorry, go ahead, Ed. I'd be in favor of the most qualified person uh, being uh, selected for the court. And I would be in favor, particularly, of someone who's demonstrated an understanding of the Bill of Rights and especially the First Amendment. I would look very closely at their record on those issues. Uh, I think there is an advantage to having somebody, uh, perhaps like Aaron Lynch, who served in the legislature. They understand separation of powers. They understand the duty of a legislature. But I'm not uh, making this decision. I would want them to look at the most qualified person, whoever best protects our civil rights and is going to protect the Constitution. Arlene? I'm stunned again, uh, frankly, at the judicial selection process and the people that emerge out of that process. It's either politicians uh, who either got their job in state government because of political clout that they had, uh, or like, like Mr. Montalbano, Judge Montalbano is in fact part of that political process, or they're the progeny of past judges. I mean, for heaven's sakes, there are so many talented people 
uh, in Rhode Island? Where are the public defenders, for example? Where are people who have a different life uh, in law other than coming through the rank and file of government, et cetera? So I, I feel that the list starts off primarily uh, without uh, a, a, a diversity. But for heaven's sakes, it's about time that we have a minority judge on the Supreme Court. And you know, certainly I think uh, Ms. Long uh, is, is qualified to be in that seat. All right, we only have a little bit of time left. I don't want to short you on outrages. Ed, let me begin with you. And let me, for the audience, uh, maybe people who do not know what has happened to Ed Acorn. He left the Providence Journal in early May. Of course, Ed is a uh, best-selling author of a number of books. We can see Mr. Lincoln behind you. <laughs> your latest book is Every Drop of Blood. And if people want to read your columns, they can now go to edacorn.com. So that catches us up to where you are. Do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? Thank you, Jim. Well, I think my outrage is just the mindless destruction of monuments. I think it's really terrible. It's part of an effort, I think, to tear down our country and our respect for what this country is. Uh, they tore down Frederick Douglass's uh, statue. He's a hero of mine. He's a major figure in my new book. I think that's just terrible. They're bringing down uh, an emancipation statue that ex-slaves paid for and uh, put up in honor of Lincoln. And I just think that's disrespectful to the ex-slaves who saved dollars and pennies to, to put that up. And I think we have to, you know, we have to look honestly at American history, what we did wrong, what we did right. But I think a mindless effort to tear down all our statues and to tear down George Washington reflects a really, uh, limited understanding of American history and how special this country is. All right, Ed, thank you. Jim Vincent, what do you have this week? Well, you know, I, I'm going to say my outrage is President Trump. Um, you know, I'm looking at the pandemic crisis. The United States of America, we're 5% of the world's population, we're 25% of the cases, we're 15% of the deaths. 25% of the cases, 15% of the deaths, 5% of the population. President Trump has stumbled, fungled and dropped the ball. There's no if, and, or buts about that. He's been, help, he's been helpless, hapless, and hopeless, but we, the American people, are the loser. Anybody that pays more attention to dead Confederate traitors than live Americans, 130,000 who died this past year alone, you know, is not really fit to be in the office of the presidency. So I'm looking strictly at the fact that he has not really stood tall, been a leader when it comes to this pandemic, and American lives, 130,000 have been uh, jeopardized. And he's going to jeopardize some kids in hot zones in Arizona and Florida, Texas, solely for political gain, lives for, for politics. That's despicable, and that's outrageous. All right, Arlene, you get the last word. You have about a minute for either an outrage or a kudo. Uh, as, as a Republican, I really uh, feel terrible that President Trump has become the racist in chief uh, with his utterances uh, that have led to, obviously, uh, this surge in white power, but equally disappointing are uh, the people in Congress, particularly the senators that are running for re-election, that give him carte blanche to spew uh, that kind of hatred. Uh, it's a shame what the Republican Party has turned into nationally. Arlene, do you think the Senate's going to flip? I know it's I know it's still four months out. Do you think there's a chance it could flip to the Democrats? Uh, I think there's a very strong chance uh, of that because I think people, most people, are basically good and get turned off uh, by uh, putting down citizens 
uh, our sister and brother citizens in this country. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. We do appreciate your joining us. We'll be here week to week. We hope you can tune in with Lively Jim and Ed and Arlene. Great to see you, even if we have to do it virtually. One day we will all reunite in the studio. But for now, we're glad to join you from our living rooms and dining rooms and wherever you are. So join us next week. We hope you have a great weekend and join us back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders I'm John Hazen White jr. and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS